1: Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless.
0: How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15,
1: just 15 bucks a month? so Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Welcome to the first ever edition of Head to Head on Talk Radio Television. We want to start a debate in this country. It's been going on for a very long time and we want to now talk to two of the very foremost debaters on the subject of coronavirus, of lockdown uh, and of how we get out of the situation we are in. The first is Peter Hitchens. The second is Dan Hodges. They have both been involved in quite... Uh, shall we say, adverse uh, arguments on Twitter, on social media with each other, sometimes good-natured, sometimes not so good-natured. They both happen to be columnists as well for the Mail on Sunday newspaper. They both have very diverging views. We're going to hear from both of them now in the first ever Head to Head. First of all, Peter, let me say welcome to Talk Radio Television.
1: Thank you. First of all, what is this about? It's about proportion. It's about whether what we are doing as a country and as a government is actually in proportion to the problem we face. Secondly, I think almost crucially it's about freedom. Are we by handing over to the government complete control of our safety and security actually ending our freedom? And thirdly, why have I got anything to say about this? And fundamentally the answer to that is I've done a lot of work on freedom. I, I, I didn't just become a columnist out of the blue. I became a columnist after many years reporting from countries which were not free and which were not governed by law. And I came to value those things very highly in my own country. and I see them threatened at the moment. That's the purpose of my being here and the the whole subject which I hope to discuss with you now.
2: Peter, thank you for that. Uh, Dan Hodges is also with us. Dan, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm going to ask you for your proper actual uh, statement, first of all, uh, in a moment. But just tell us if you can answer Peter's points there. Why is this an important debate?
0: Well, it's an important debate because it's the biggest. I think the biggest single issue, domestic issue that any of us have faced, probably in our lifetimes, and certainly the country's faced since since the war. So um, that's why you know I personally welcome the debate, and I you know welcome the opportunity to find you know have a proper discussion
1: about all these vital issues.
2: Excellent. Well, Peter, let me ask you formally yes. to give us your opening statement. You have two minutes.
1: Well, my opening statement is this: from the very beginning. I thought that what we were doing was out of proportion to the problem. And I thought that the government was setting aside important protections of law and freedom in a rush uh, to, in, to enter into a completely new era of government in which all kinds of freedoms which had previously been normal were shut down. All kinds of powers were taken by the government and police which they hadn't previously had. There is an important point here uh, that right up until a very short period before this happened, we had a plan in this country. And I, th- this is the plan which was developed in this country for dealing with a pandemic. And it contains absolutely none of the lockdowns, house arrests, or in, in general, extreme measures which the government took. And we now know from an interview with uh, Professor Ferguson in The Times in l- last December, that right up until the last minute, the government had thought and the, its advisors had thought that they could not and should not copy a totalitarian country, China, in its uh, in its methods in coping with this disease, suddenly this happened. It became, it seems to me, at that point, the duty of anybody who was concerned about freedom of the rule of law to at least dissent from this and to point out that something else could have been done and might have been done. And in fact, one of the reasons why it fell on people such as me was because the parliamentary opposition failed, parliament failed, the courts failed much of the media failed to offer any criticism at all. Our freedom depends on being, being prepared to accept that there is legitimate dissent in society. And one of the things which I felt at the very beginning of this was that dissent was in danger. And I've felt actually in the past few weeks, that danger growing very, very strongly. Indeed, it, this began as an attempt to combat a disease. It's become a revolution in our society.
2: Thank you, Peter. That's your two-minute opening statement. Dan, uh, let's hear from you. Dan Hodges, with your opening statement. You have two minutes. Well, if we've been having
0: this discussion over the summer, I would have agreed with a lot of what Peter just said. But two fundamental things have changed. The first is the vaccine. And anybody who's serious about looking at these issues in a, an objective way acknowledges that the vaccine is a game changer. But I think the more crucial thing is that in the, in the run-up to Christmas... Um, the lockdown sceptics and the government and the government's experts set out diametrically opposed, but very clear positions. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the government said we are seeing a second wave. That second wave will lead to a surge in infections, a surge in hospitalizations, and a surge in deaths. And at each point, the lockdown sceptics disagreed fundamentally with those predictions they said there would be no second wave. They said hospitalizations were simply a product of mass testing. They said the hospitalizations were were simply a product of people entering entering hospital with mild COVID infections who had things such as broken legs. And they said we would see no increase in excess mortality. On, On each of those points, the lockdown skeptics were shown to be wrong and the government and their experts were shown to be right. Despite that, the so-called lockdown sceptics continue to simply deploy the same arguments. We can, as Peter says, have a debate about the civil liberties implications. We can have a debate about the economic cost. We can have a a debate about the broader social cost. But when you attempt to simply deny the impact of COVID on the country, the impact on the health service, And the vital role lockdown, unwelcome, terrible though it is, has in ensuring we have time to protect the most vulnerable and unlock in a safe and sustained way. Then, as I've said over the past few weeks, you cease to become merely a sceptic and become a lockdown denier.
2: Well, that's uh, your two minutes up. My first question, and I'm going to come to you, Dan, to answer this one first, because my question was uh, couched in terms before you both made those statements. So what I'm going to say to you now is that you're surely describing yourself, Dan, when you describe lockdown sceptics up until about September of last year. And while I know that lots of people say that the lockdown sceptics, as they've become known, got it wrong, they didn't actually get it wrong because they didn't get it wrong until December when things changed, as you've just quite rightly said. But how can you explain, Peter, how you have been almost the sole embodiment of of lockdown um, scepticism, shall we say, since the beginning? And I'm gonna come to you, Dan, first. I mean, you've said that you were um, uh, convinced by changes in the way that things happened. Um, And how can you justify saying to people that they are COVID deniers when they quite frankly are not that, they are simply sceptical of whether the lockdown is working?
0: For the reasons that I, that I just pointed out, I mean, as I said, for, for, for me, the key thing was the vaccine. Up until that point, it was quite clear. Lockdown in whatever form, be it full lockdown, the various tier systems, 10pm rule, scotch egg, egg rules, they were simply not a sustainable way of combating the virus. I don't think there was any dispute about that. But once we had the vaccine, we had and have finally a way out and what we need to do quite clearly is utilize the vaccine and simply buy time for the vaccine to be for for the population to be vaccinated so we can lock out and come out and ensure this is the last lockdown. Now I I don't think anybody analyzing the vaccine you can look at just look at the reaction for example the row we've had with Europe as we've streaked ahead of Europe in terms of the vaccinations everybody i think accepts as i said the vaccine is is a game changer now you said well the lockdown skeptics didn't get it wrong till december fine but they did get it wrong they got it wrong on all the points i listed and here's the crucial thing despite getting it wrong and despite being proven manifestly to get it wrong on there being no second wave no infections hospitalizations excess deaths they continue to perpetuate the same arguments they cite the same discredited sources, they cite the same discredited reports, they, can pl- they continue to use the same arguments. Now if you're a sceptic, that's healthy, but you have to be prepared to exert your scepticism, look at the facts and crucially change your opinions based on those facts. The lockdown sceptics, as were, continually refuse to do, do that,
2: which is why, as I say,
0: they are not sceptics anymore, they're deniers.
2: Peter, how would you respond to that? Because I think you have been, um, if I may say so, very consistent in your opinions.
1: Well, I think there are several things here. First of all, the lockdown sceptics are not a political party or a centralised organisation. And it's it would be wrong to suggest that we've all held the same opinion or said the same thing. I, for instance, have never particularly got on with Toby Young before this. So I don't expect to get on with him afterwards. And <laughs> would have disagreed with, with things uh, that he said during it. But Dan didn't actually quote anybody directly from any of the things that he suggested. Uh, what, uh, for instance, I did um, on the question of the, the the second way was I quoted Professor Hugh Pennington, uh, a leading expert on the subject, and so I was saying that he didn't think it was going to be one. Uh, and, and I said at one point, I think perhaps that the, the infection was declining, when it was, and because figures would show that it was. Uh, Dan himself has, has, has written. I think he wrote on September 26th. He quoted a minister saying, "There wouldn't be another lockdown." Well, we can only go on what uh, on what our sources and what we read tell us. I can't really chide Dan and say, "You said there wouldn't be another lockdown." I think at one point he also said he thought a vaccine was very unlikely. Uh, and again, that would have come from sources. It was a perfectly reasonable thing to say. It doesn't make everything he says wrong. Uh, so I think that partly he caricatures lockdown sceptics, having been much. More hardline about this than he does. He also dismisses a huge part of the argument about uh, the the actual examination and and uh, an interpretation of statistics, which seems to me to remain open. And and I think that the the term "denier," even if it were technically correct, which it isn't, is a very uh, dangerous term to use in debate. The the thing which immediately comes into people's minds when they hear "denier" is Holocaust denier. and I think it's a dog whistle. Uh, to try and uh, to, to try and demonize those people against whom it is applied. And I think that this debate really has to be held, because if you recognize the existence of dissent on the basis of civility between both sides and also on the recognition by each side that the other one is benevolent, that, that the other side wants good outcomes, has good intentions. Once you start using expressions like denier, you make that impossible. And it, since uh, people started doing that sort of thing, I've had many, many more on social media personal attacks on my supposed wickedness and desire to to kill people or my responsibility for having killed people, which are completely baseless rubbish. Uh, And I think that it's lowered the the tone of the debate and lowered the possibility of us us actually having a, a serious discussion. And I think Mr. Hodges should desist from it.
2: Well, let me interrupt you there, Peter, because we're going to give Dan a, a minute to come back on that particular uh, subject. Uh, you put your hand up a little bit earlier, Dan. There was something else you wanted to correct. Yeah, yeah. Two points on the on the
0: on the on the point of denial. I mean, the greatest respect to Peter, and, and Peter people can check this. You know, Peter has been very, uh, how shall I say, robust in terms of his engagement. He's dismissed some of his critics as Maoists, as Stalinists, and with respect, it's a slightly rich when the word denial is used for Peter, somebody who consistently demands we have free and open debate to suddenly attempt to police language in this way and claim that the word denial is inextricably linked to the Holocaust. But going back to the form of the, the, the first point, as I said, I've got no objection to Peter citing experts who were then proven to be wrong. They've all done that. He's absolutely right. I was skeptical about the concept of a vaccine. I, I've you know was 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 skeptical and and, and published statements by ministers in which they themselves said lockdown no longer be necessary. But here's the crucial difference. Do you, when the facts change, do you have basically the courage and the intellectual rigor to take those new facts and adjust your opinion accordingly? Or do you do what Peter and his fellow lockdown deniers continue to do, which is to cite, as I say, exactly the same experts in exactly the same way exactly the same research exactly the same report when they have been proven
2: demonstrably to be wrong well let me uh, come up with the next question here because it's question number two and funnily enough it was to peter first about being accused of having blood on your hands and similarly uh, being sort of likened to some kind of cruel sadist who doesn't wish to look at the evidence and instead wishes to uh, allow people to die without having any thought for them. I know, Peter, that that's not true. But equally, as Dan has said, you know, people have been mistaken over the course of the last year in many different ways. And if experts get things wrong, then, of course, occasionally journalists will get things wrong. But Peter, what evidence do you have, for example, that lockdowns don't work?
1: I think the the, the I, I don't I, I, can't, I, I can't say that lockdowns don't work. I think that would be an extremely difficult thing to establish, and I suppose you could you, you could you could perhaps argue that they might have uh, inevitably some effect because you can't shut down an entire society without any effect. But well, I challenge those who say that they do work. I say, well, what exactly is your evidence? Because there doesn't seem to me to be very much. Whereas there are the copious numbers of scientific papers. I know we're supposed to list them all by name, but I, I, it would, there would be too many. I have a stack of seventeen on, on my left hand here, uh, which suggest that they don't work. And there is no—if you look globally at every single country which has uh, which has been involved in this in, in this in this in this in this, this global outbreak—you will not find. A correlation between the severity of shutdowns and the level of deaths on the country you'll find some countries which have shut down very hard have uh have continued to have very high levels of deaths and others which haven't the the reverse and you can do the same with with states in the united states uh, that the, the deaths per million in, in, in states doesn't, doesn't seem at all to be governed by the severity of lockdowns. So I would challenge people to say where they were, but I want to go back to where, where we began because it still seems to me to be the thing which gets forgotten all the time. Is this a proportionate response? Why didn't we stick uh, to the carefully planned uh, response based on hundreds of years, actually, of precedent, which had already been prepared by the government for just such an occasion? The the whole the whole idea of closing down entire society and economy of, of quarantining the healthy, of confining people to their homes is entirely new and untested. So why has it been so little discussed? And the, whole, the, the, the amount of power which has accrued to the government as a result of this is also completely unprecedented, not not merely in peacetime, but in wartime. There's nothing been seen like this before. Undiscussed. That's the real discussion, whether or not... I, I don't want to get involved in arguments about figures, statistics, the nature of, 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 uh, of what is responsible for levels of mortality, because I think we get bogged down in it. I think it is still much more of an open question. I also would like to reply to to, to Mr. Hodges on one other point, one... Uh, which is that I have been attacked, uh, particularly and in detail. The, the magazine Private Eye, a voice of the establishment, went through everything I'd written and said to see if they could find anything to embarrass me with, and they produced a, an article in that paper, about to which I replied in detail, and I felt that that what they had done was uh, was actually struggled rather to find any way where I'd been. Uh, I've been seriously factually wrong, and I would challenge anybody else to do the same. Uh, I may have made, as many people have done, a, a, a misjudgments at the time of what the future might be, but I don't claim to be a prophet, uh, and, 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 and nor does nor Mr. Hodges. But my assessments of what's going on, I continue to stand by. I, say, I wrote a lengthy repos to what Private Eye said, which anybody can read on my blog, in which I make that clear. And I also wrote them a letter saying the same thing. I don't accept his characterization. Of, of my positions having been disclosed by events.
2: Dan, let me come to you, because, of course, those who would argue about whether lockdowns work would always say, uh, and I've said this myself in the past, that, you know, if they worked so well, why do we keep having to have them? So can you give us evidence, Dan, of why lockdowns work?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the most th- and obviously, you know, we can all we can all swap our, our experts. But for me, uh, I think the definitive study on UK lockdown is currently sitting, is, is the stu- study that was produced by the Lancet. And it, it, it's significant for a number of reasons. Firstly, it specifically looks at the UK. But secondly, there's been a lot of debate and modelling. The adv- the, 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 what, what, what distinguishes the, the Lancet December study is that it was able to utilise not just the initial lockdown, but also look at the tier system, the Northern Ireland lockdown and the Welsh circuit breaker so it could compare the various lockdown interventions they ran that data through their model and their model accurately it wasn't sort of some sort of sort of hypothetical modelling they were able to run the hard data through their model and they accurately predicted the outcomes based on that model they were quite unequivocal the number of hospitalizations this is with the lockdown the number of hospitalizations fell by half the number of deaths fell by a similar amount. Here's the thing I want to say to Peter, though. You know, Peter does seem to me now slightly backing off the lockdown doesn't work thing. But obviously, a lot of lockdown sceptics have made that made that case. What I want to ask is this. It, 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 obviously, 100, I think 150 countries globally have had some form of lockdown. That is obviously on the advice of their medical experts whose sole job is the protection of public health. Now, Peter and fellow lockdown skeptics claim they have this evidence base which shows lockdowns don't work or are ineffective. Right? To believe that, you have to believe one of two things. First, is across the globe, the global health community, the health experts, none of them are privy to the information and data that Peter and his small band of sort of amateur lockdown sleuths have uncovered that they're, on, they're continuing to lock down, continuing to, with this, even though the evidence that Peter and his, his, his merry band have uncovered, for some reason, even though it's their job, they're not, they're not privy to that. Now, that's frankly ridiculous. The other argument is they are privy to it and there is some sort of global conspiracy. Across the globe, here, Europe, I think 45 of the 50 states in the United States um vietnam australia there is this global conspiracy to keep locking us down even if lockdowns even though lockdowns don't work now frankly that is as i say that is not skepticism that is venturing into the realm of global conspiracy theories and again i'm very sorry peter said he stands by what he said he started off only the question before by acknowledging that the things he said and the experts he cited were proven to be wrong, so you cannot stand by what he said before. Well,
2: let's give Peter the right to reply to that because I think um, we'll come to another question on on the, the way that you have both approached um, lockdowns. But Peter, would you like to address that?
1: I, to, to, to cite an expert who turns out to be wrong is not to be wrong. It's it, it, that, that is. If I if I had said there will be uh, no lockdown because Professor Pennington says so, uh, then you could say that I was wrong. I simply said, here is Professor Pennington. And I, I, I'm constantly derided by people who say, well, you, you aren't expert on anything. Why should we listen to you? And I say, well, I completely agree with you. I'm not expert on anything. Nor, I should point out, is, is any minister in the government expert on anything, but that doesn't seem to bother you so much. I don't claim expertise, and I'm careful not to. I, I think here we move from the, the denier smear, uh, which I've already is, is expressed my objections to, and I really do wish Mr. Hodges would abandon it. So this conspiracy theory, I, I haven't backed off. I, my position has always been, if you if you really think these, these shutdowns work, uh, then establish it, not by saying uh, A happened after B, but by saying A happened because of B, and of course the relationship would seem to me to be very difficult to show. Uh, there's a strong argument in, in which I have uh, offered the proposition that, on the basis of of uh, research done, uh, the um, by by people into the uh, into the length of time of incubation of, uh, of of COVID and the length of time between onset and death, that it's extremely unlikely uh, that the shutdown announced on March the twenty third could conceivably have led to a peaking of deaths on April the eighth, and I think that's still a a powerful argument. And I think the original lockdown. They will to have to look all over. The countries of Europe, uh, particularly countries such as, as, as Belgium and uh, Slovenia, which have locked down, indeed uh, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, which have locked down hard uh, and have faced repeats of it. In the sage minutes of, of before uh, of before March the twenty third, you'll find suggestions that a hard lockdown would only lead to a second wave. Uh, it doesn't necessarily work, and the other things, even if it did work. We have to deal with the other question, which I hope we'll come to, of the enormous damage done uh, to other areas of society by these measures. And I don't just refer to lockdown and that, but we've had far more things than lockdown. We've had a a general economic shutdown outside lockdown, uh, which has led to huge medical. And economic consequences, and indeed to to a great deal of misery and loneliness, which which have greatly damaged the national health as well. And I I don't think you can say that something has worked unless you take that into consideration. I do think though, that, that Mr. Hodges should abandon these suggestions of, of of conspiracy. I have not said anything which could enable him legitimately to say that. And I wish he would conduct this debate in a fair and reasonable manner, rather than with this, this sort of name calling, which I think lowers the tone and makes it much harder to have a sensible okay. discussion.
2: Peter, that was a bit of a long answer there. So you may have to be curtailed slightly in the second one. But I will uh, speak up for journalists, since you two don't seem to want to. Uh, whenever people say to me, you're not an expert in anything, I say, well, I'll tell you what an expert in. I'm an expert in everything. Because what I do uh, is born out of a career spent listening to politicians, watching people doing what they do for a living and talking to members of the public in a way that hardly anybody else who does one particular job does. So I think both of you uh, should be proud of that because both of you have a different view here. But this next question is, is to you first, Dan. You've been quite dismissive. Uh, of the people you refer to as the, uh, as the COVID deniers, the lockdown sceptics, all of those people uh, who warn of the mental anxiety and depression uh, suffered by our children and our young people in particular, to say nothing of the rising number of suicide uh, calls that the London Ambulance Service is having to field at the moment. Can you not be called equally cruel and uncaring about those people's lives?
0: No, because, but can I just say, can I just stop you? Because this is, this is, very, this is very, very important. All of them, the there is obviously a significant mental health impact from lockdown. All of the senior mental health charities are very clear, though, we must not draw a link between lockdown and increased suicides. That's a very important point to stress. OK, there is no evidence of an yeah, increase but the in suicide, that. But the,
2: but the suicide calls to the London Ambulance Service have increased demonstrably in the last year. All right, might listen to what I'm saying, all right? All the
0: senior mental health charities are very clear. They say it's very important. You just mentioned journalists. They're very explicit, it's very important. Journalists, all of us, do not draw that direct link. We can have the discussion without bringing suicide, bringing suicides into it. There is obviously a serious mental health impact. There is obviously a serious economic impact. There is obviously Serious social impact. No one is de- denying that. I am perfectly, and you know, my, you, you cited my articles uh, over the summer before that. All of my articles articulate that. That, however, does not avoid the fundamental reality that the, the National Health Service, we've, we have currently now exceeded 100,000 COVID deaths. We were told there would be 20,000 COVID deaths not even it's not even it's not even finished yet as Peter and the fellow lockdown, his fellow lockdown deniers completely and accurately point out lockdown is also having a severe direct impact on our ability to, to treat other conditions cancer cancer operations other operations because of the enorm- the enormous pressure we cannot ignore that vast impact and crucially and I've got to re- re- repeat this Crucially now, we finally have a way out. We finally have a way out of the nightmare for everyone via the vaccine. But we have to buy time for the country to be vaccinated, not just so we can protect the vulnerable people, not just so we can reduce the pressure on the NHS, but we can ensure when we exit lockdown this time, and I confidently predict we will, we will be, begin to, 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 to exit lockdown relatively shortly, we make sure this is the last
2: lockdown. Peter? Well, again,
1: um, Mr Hodges won't desist from using these terms such as deniers. Um, I think that if you are taking measures as stern as the ones which the government is taking, I, I think we haven't even discussed economics this or the long-term effect, We're
2: coming to that. Don't worry.
1: Borrowing huge sum of money and of destroying, it seems to be, very large numbers of businesses and jobs. I, and then, there, there is also I mean, there's this, the, the, the work which I, I was going to cite here, this improved measure of deaths due to COVID-19 in England and Wales uh, done by Williams, Crooks, Glass and Glass for Loughborough and Sheffield mm-hmm. universities, uh, which I cite here, is, is the first beginnings of work done on the, the very s- severe effects way beyond sufferers from COVID of, of the policies adopted by the government. Since March. I think there will be much more. And I'm glad to see that Mr. Hodge is at least acknowledging that some damage is being done. The question is whether it is proportionate to the problem which is being solved. He keeps using figures of the numbers of deaths which he attributes to COVID. But I would go back right back to April and May when the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Jenny Harris, said twice at government press conferences that we should be careful uh, to distinguish between deaths with and deaths from COVID. And I think the failure to make that distinction in many of those who have wanted to, 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 to suggest that this crisis was uh, perhaps more severe than it actually is, and I'm not saying it's not severe, I'm just saying the level of its severity is being uh, is, is perhaps being exaggerated, uh, that people have forgotten that distinction, and we have just accepted without question everything that they've been told. But Leave that aside for me. I just want to give one small example of somebody indirectly known to me, a, a man in his 80s who'd maintained his health largely by swimming every day. And during the, the first lockdown, he was unable to do so. And there was a brief period when he was allowed to do so again, he found that he'd been inactive for so long he could no longer swim. So that's his life, hugely damaged uh, by this uh, extreme behaviour of the government. Uh, it's, I think, typical of many, many more, particularly of the formerly healthy old, whose, both their social lives, their exercise, their, their, their general well-being has been gravely damaged by this. Now, to justify those effects, you really have to do better uh, than to say, well, maybe, uh, maybe lockdown works. Maybe this, this, this post hoc, oh, uh, uh, propter hoc paper shows that it does. Well, just because winter follows harvest, it doesn't mean winter is caused by harvest. And we should be careful about attributing these alleged successes to that. And even if they have been, was it ever worth it? And was it worth the tremendous loss of freedom? The transformation of the police into a bullying militia and all the other things which we've experienced, the shutdown of education, both schools and university grave damage to the, to, to the lives and, and prospects of huge numbers of young people. Was it,
2: could, could it conceivably have been worth it? Well, let me let me ask you both to see whether you can just nod on this one, because we'll then move on to the next question. But I think you both are are bringing together the two ends of the argument to the point where we could probably agree, basically, that the lockdown has had an immensely damaging effect on all other parts of society. And while it may have worked in some ways, it has not been without cost. I mean, I think you could both agree that, couldn't you?
0: We could, but can I just, can I, I just want to come back on something, and you can take that out of my time for later, because I think, you know, Peter's just given a classic example of what, I, what I'm talking about there. Firstly, he's attempted to cast doubt on the mortality figures. Now, there are two ways that the mortality figures are, are, are effectively calculated. One is, obviously, the ONS, the ONS data shows over 100,000 deaths. The second thing is the comparison with, uh, is the excess mortality. Difference. The difference between deaths normally this time of year and how many we've seen as 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 a result of of COVID, and the the analysis is clear. It's been done independently. It's been done actuated, by actuaries. Excess deaths are now, depending on your analysis, running at levels we haven't seen since either the 1940s or 1914. Right. That's that's been independently established. But what 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 Peter then said and went on to say they're being exaggerated these figures are being exaggerated exaggerated by whom and for what for what purpose because he took issue with me before when i raised the spectacle of a of some great conspiracy but here he is saying the figures are being exaggerated but well, obviously in this country
2: and by implication by all the other
0: by all the other countries which also have huge death figures
2: and are implementing lockdown as a result but actually no because I remember back in the summer of last year many of the people who suggested our numbers were higher than they ought to have been uh we're saying actually the measurements in most countries are done differently and so it's not entirely correct to say that um, might you know um, it
0: might, might be done differently but they're done but differently but, from, but there's also no, be done but nobody apart from peter and, and and the lockdown deniers claims that the, the levels of mortality And that's so enormous
2: that we have to implement a lockdown. Well, that's not true as well, because I've been telling, I've been talking to doctors who have said to me that it would be much more honest for the government to release the excess death figures rather than the total death figures, because everybody knows that for a long time, if you had COVID test positive in 28 days and you then died, whether it was of COVID, you would be put down as a COVID death. But let me let Peter answer that.
1: I would like to object to the form in which Mr. Hodges uh, said what he just said, that I cast doubt on the mortality figures. Uh, I haven't cast doubt on the mortality figures. Uh, the mortality figures are beyond doubt. People have died. Uh, that's not in question. The question is the categorization classification of those figures, uh, which seems to me to remain open to some question uh, as to exactly uh, how, how many of those people have actually died of rather than with COVID. And I... I recently took a look at the, uh, the, the, the changes, for instance, which were introduced by Mr. Hancock in March in the recording of, the, of, 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 uh, of deaths, and particularly the, the classification of, of COVID as a notifiable disease, which is normally reserved for such things as, uh, as malaria or plague, and also the World Health Organization's in, instructions on the completion of death certificates. And it's, it's perfectly possible uh, to make a respectable case as Dr. Jenny Harris, as I say, Deputy Chief Medical Officer, has twice made for saying that we need to separate deaths with and deaths of. And Dr. John Lee, the distinguished pathologist, has constantly said that he believes that these, the recording of these deaths uh, is open to serious question. Uh, I, I don't, I'm don't. i not offering any explanation of it. I, I mean, I, what I have always said from the start is that governments in, in this country particularly panicked uh, in March and have ever since then double down on their panic. And that's the only explanation I require of this.
2: Well, let us uh, move on from that particular argument. I don't think you're going to get any agreement there from from either one of you. Uh, let's talk about the financial state of affairs. The Bank of England, this one to you, Peter, first, last week suggested that the economy would bounce back very strongly in 2021. How do you see the recovery actually happening if the lockdown measures are either lifted uh, or actually kept in place?
1: Well, I I hope the Bank of England is right, Uh, but I have to say we're in completely uncharted territory economically. No government has ever uh, borrowed uh, to the extent that governments are borrowing now uh, from the future. The only example I could think of that begins to resemble it are the, the, the governments of the major powers in the First World War which pretty much borrowed on the, on, on, on the idea they were going to win the war and be able to get all the money back from the, 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 defeated, the defeated party, uh, which is one of the reasons, I think, why Germany ended up with hyperinflation in the 1920s, because they didn't win, uh, but they borrowed the money anyway. I think borrowing on this scale is fantastically dangerous, uh, and I don't think we know how it will end. And I think that already the, the, the government has hesitated several times in actually coming up with a budget, because it doesn't it knows it can't balance the books. And that once it tries to, then very important things will happen. First of all, much heavier taxation will be necessary. Uh, who it will fall on and where is, is, is unclear. And secondly, very likely, the, the, this, the pumping of all of this money, not just into the banks and the financial institutions as has been done up till now, but actually into the pockets of the public, uh, is almost certain to lead to inflation of a type I've seen at least not seen in this country since the 1970s, which I remember very well. Uh, which was totally destroyed the, the the savings and in many cases the fixed incomes of of, of, of many older people who were left uh, in a very serious situation. Inflation can be very bad for a lot of people, and and taxation will will be heavy. There is there are going to be consequences. of This, if we can bounce back under those circumstances, well and good. But we're not fundamentally a strong economy. We run a tremendous deficit. We have huge private debt as well as public debt. We don't have much manufacturing industry from which to rebuild. And I'm very worried about the, the future. And I'm amazed at how complacent or, or indeed ignorant people are about the, the risks that we're running.
2: OK, um, uh, Dan, let me come to you. I mean, I've often argued with Peter about this one at re- very much at the start of our conversations that it's such a big issue. Um, deficit, and it's such a big amount to borrow that they can't possibly let it crash because it will be a bit like letting a big company go when you owe the bank a load of money. The bank keeps you going in order to to make sure they get the money back. How is this economy going to recover, Dan?
0: Well, we have to wait and see. I mean, this is one area where I think there is there, there would be a degree of uh, of agreement between myself and Peter. I do think we are facing you know severe economic issues as a result of the of COVID and the the broader economic, economic downturn. I mean, there are some positive signs. I think we've seen some positive signs in the United States, for example, that the economic bounce back there may be, may be stronger than was, was expected. And also, as you just cited, there is analysis from the Bank of England and other economists that we could be looking at some form of V-shaped recovery. But nonetheless, there is absolutely no avoiding the fact, you know, as, as Peter points out and others have pointed out, that we are going to face significant economic hardship moving forward. Um, a, a, again, you know, I, I think this, you know, I think the key in this whole debate is honesty and acceptance of facts. And the facts are we have been borrow- borrowing huge amounts of money, money to sustain the economy through this crisis. And those huge amounts of money are going are gonna to have to be paid back. And there's no there's no ducking
2: that. There is no ducking it. But the question, I suppose, is um, how do they get that money back? And Peter, you've mentioned there's going to probably be higher levels of tax. We've already seen the government suggesting that they might try and put a tax on Amazon. It hasn't seemed to work terribly well up until now because Amazon hardly pays any taxes. it is. So no doubt they would avoid any new taxes that they got put.
1: Well, it seems a pretty far-fetched scheme to me. I don't think they've got a clue. Uh, they, they simply decided at, at one point uh, in the early summer, I think uh, the chancellor, Mr. Sunak, uh, was very worried about the cost of furlough and the immense depths of debt into which it was getting us. Uh, but he was ultimately overruled uh, by political forces and compelled to to extend it and extend it and extend it. And everything's been like this. The, the the People say, well, who cares about, for instance, landlords not being paid rent? Well, the problem with that is that a lot of those landlords uh, who, are, who are receiving rent uh, are actually running companies which provide the, the income for pension funds. So you may not like landlords, but you, there are an awful lot of people you may not like. But if you rely on a pension fund or you have any savings or investment, these things are damaging. But we have basically stopped the economy. We've turned off the taps uh, to, to let the money in uh, but we're, we're running the, the taps full tilt night and day to let the money out, and it cannot but lead to serious problems. I can't predict the exact shape of them. We don't even know whether the government will survive them. I think there will. There the, the, the has to be. I, I, I hate to say it, but there has to be quite a severe amount of job loss when furlough comes to an end. And the small businesses, which which went down for the third time with this lockdown, I think many of them, a lot of them, will just simply not come up again. And, and that's jobs, too. And it's not just the jobs of the people who work in them, but they, they all they all spend money in other places. All that stops happening. I, I The consequences of it are gigantic. Nothing like it, the same with, with shutting down society, nothing like it has ever been attempted before. The parliament has never properly debated it. There's never been a cost-benefit analysis. There's never been any serious study of whether of, of whether this is, is, is a justified reaction to what we face, which remains by simple, single point again and again and again we didn't know what we were doing we've done it uh, shouldn't we at least consider whether we did the right thing
2: let me just let you come back on that down for, for a quick minute if I may before we get to our final question because the events of this week alone must worry you slightly when you see the Secretary of State for Health waking up uh, getting up in the House of Commons and deciding that there's going to be a 10-year penalty in jail for somebody who fills out a form uh, incorrectly or deliberately misleads somebody on it uh, doesn't that make you slightly concerned
0: Well, all aspects of this uh, make me slightly concerned, but I've got to be honest, um, somebody lying because they want to go on holiday, coming back and then bringing back a strain of the virus that means our our vaccines are ineffective, that completely negates our vaccination programme, means we could potentially see a repeat of 100,000 deaths and potentially be plunged into lockdown. Again, concerns me even more and frankly if that were to be the case and somebody would have be imprisoned for that they wouldn't they wouldn't have any tears from me going back to peter's point i mean i mean this is one area i would disagree with with peter you know this argument that there's been no debate about this in the house of commons there's been no debate about the, the economics i mean rishi sunak has been dancing in and out of the House of Commons on a regular basis. I think he's been back with about five or six different COVID recovery plans. So the idea this hasn't had parliamentary oversight and, 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 and scrutiny is completely wrong. And I think one of the things I do object to is this argument that we we consistently have from Peter and other lockdown deniers that because there is a degree of political unanimity on the need for a lockdown, be it you know the Labour Party be it you know, Arlene, Arlene Foster in Northern Ireland, be it um, uh, the, the SNP up in Scotland, Labour in Wales, and obviously Boris him, himself, That this in some way negates, negates de- democracy. You may agree with the lockdown, you may disagree with the lockdown, but it has had almost universal parli- parliamentary support and the fact that politicians agree on an issue of, of, of major national import and at a moment of national crisis, does not, in my view, indicate we are we are teetering on the brink of some some sort of dictatorship or that democracy is failing.
2: Well, let us get to the last question, because it's been a very civilised debate. I want to thank you both for being so civilised. I couldn't think we, we could actually make that happen. But we have made it happen. So it shows you anything's possible uh, in the modern world. We're expecting Boris Johnson, this question to you, Dan, first, to set out a roadmap. Uh, for easing lockdown on the twenty second of February, uh, which is not far away, given that at the time of uh, this filming, something like ten point seven million people have had their first jab, and it looks like we'll meet our target to vaccinate the top four priority groups by February the fifteenth, which is just next week. What do you think this roadmap should look like?
0: Well, I think th- there's been obviously been a huge amount of debate and speculation about this. I think, as ever, when there's a huge amount. Of- speculation debate i think we'll look back and wonder why i mean i think it was very clear that the government's plan was to begin to ease us out of lockdown um round about easter i think that's what we we're going to see i think the government's priority is right i think schools should come first then easing of social interaction then shops and gradually those areas such as such as pubs and restaurants so i think in terms of what I'm being told, and others are being told about the the, the sort of broad roadmap, I think um, I think that's absolutely right. I think the crucial thing, though, on this, and I would I, I would say this, I presume people will disagree with this, but I think the crucial thing, I come back to the point I made before, this has to be the last lockdown, and if that means we have to maybe ease some restrictions have to have to remain in place for a few weeks, a few weeks longer here and there. I personally would err on the side of caution to make sure we don't have to go back into this this nightmare again. But I I think the crucial thing, and it it has to be said again, because it can't be said enough. We'd have been having this debate 12 months ago. The idea of some sort of having a vaccine that we have now rolled out on the scale we've had now we would think is, is un, unimaginable. And I think because of the vaccine, as I as I wrote, I've been castigated for it by the lockdown deniers, but I stand by it. Because of the lockdown, because of the speed of the lockdown, I think we are now coming to the end of this, this long national nightmare. I think it'll take a, a, another few months, but I do think so long as we get it right, Boris is committed to getting it right, I think
2: this will be the last lockdown. Well, let's hope so. Um, Peter, your uh, conclusion?
1: Is this, my, is this my last contribution? No, this is
2: not your last statement. This is your answer to how the roadmap should be somehow rolled out.
1: Well, it's very difficult because the government has used from the beginning, and this is, is clearly in the sage minutes back in March, has used fear uh, to obtain compliance with its policy. And it's been horrifyingly successful. It's doing it at the moment as well with its current advertising campaign, which is fear-mongering on a very large scale. And once you frighten people, and I know lots of people who have been really seriously frightened by this, it's very hard to unfrighten them. And while I would 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 personally want to end this as quickly as possible, uh, my fear is that because so many people have been so badly frightened, that can't be done practically. And we're, we face a very long period in which people need to be reassured back into normal life. And also we have the problem of the government's advisors who have only one responsibility, which is safety and security and the, the, the health of the people is the highest law. They have no other uh, pressure on them. For them, at every point, uh, they are going to say, no, no, let's not let go quite yet. And there'll always be a good argument for not letting go quite yet. And I'm not at all sure we're ever going to get entirely out of this. And it's been, it's been the experience of the past. And remember, September the 11th, all the security measures which were applied to air travel, uh, which was said to be temporary because we were having a, a terrorist crisis, they're all still there. And I'm still not confident that we're ever going to shake free of this. Uh, entirely i think there will be many restrictions uh, and, and many demands on people being made which will continue far into the future certainly for many months to come and i i, I wish i shared mr hodges's optimism about being able to get out of it but at the moment uh, every moment when we seem to be on the point of getting out of it some new reason comes up for holding that off uh, i'm as pleased as he is about the vaccine but it seems to me that, the, that tremendous as it is and the extraordinary success of british science that it is. It doesn't actually appear to be producing a, a, a liberating result that everybody hoped for.
2: Yes, I think uh, we can give you one more minute, Dan, before the final closing statements, if you want to come back on that, because I think Peter's point uh, is, is quite well made. I mean, I, I think you've both made excellent points. The problem with, with a lot of what is now said about how we're going to get out of this, the vaccine is the answer. The government over the course of a year, Dan, I think you'd, you'd agree, uh, have made an awful lot of statements that have turned out not to be true.
0: Yeah, because but that's the, 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 because of the nature of the uh, of the virus and, and the pandemic. These things don't, unfortunately, develop uh, develop to order and on the timelines we we would like. And it comes back to what I've always said: do you do you adjust to face the new realities, or do you just, do, do you just plough on regardless? And you know, I, I, this is where I fundamentally disagree with, with 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 Peter and his sort of rather apocalyptic vision of of. of, of these, these sort of oppressions on our freedom that are going, to be, are going to be perpetuated. I mean, as I said, you know, Peter objects to the idea of conspiracy theories, but this idea that Boris Johnson is sitting in Downing Street, you know, plotting his way to keep the British people under the yoke of COVID oppression for years on end, Look, it, it, it's a fantasy. I'm, I'm sorry, you know, if, if, if people want to believe this is what's going on, then nothing I'm going to say is going to, is, is going to persuade them. But that's not the reality. And, 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 and this is what I, you know, I, I mean, I'll ask Peter this directly. Why, what, why is Boris doing this? Why are the government doing this? You know, w- why are they trying to, to, to lock us down in this in this appalling way, unless they are genuinely convinced It's for for the protection of public health. Because whatever you say about Boris Johnson, you know, the idea that he is some Stalinist or Maoist figure, frankly, is, as I say, it's just a fantasy. Peter, a quick
1: 30 seconds to come back. So the simple reason for it has always been weakness. And Mr Johnson panicked. Uh, He he may be not or or not be or be all kinds of things, but he's he's a weak person without any particularly strong uh, guiding uh, ideas, and when he was presented with this panic, he panicked and he dropped the perfectly well-crafted plan, which I waved about at the beginning of this debate, and plunged into a plan which was literally Maoist, as uh, as Professor Ferguson said in The Times. It had come from a communist repressive state, which I have to say still has Mao Zedong on its banknotes and reveres him, so it's not unfair to use the term Maoist about it at all. That is the model which we chose. We followed the model of the People's Republic of China, a repressive police state, uh, and, uh, and we've been following it ever since. And once you've made a mistake in panic, uh, which you possibly haven't done, Mr. Hodges, but uh, I certainly have. Once you've made a mistake in panic, what you tend to do is double down on that mistake rather than admit it. And this this is the real reason for it. And I haven't said anything about people sitting in Downing Street plotting anything. And I do wish you would you would you would take all these straw men you produce all the time, take them to a barn and burn them, and learn to argue with a little bit more civilization.
2: Well, listen, I'm going to thank both of you for, for arguing uh, together with a reasonable degree of civilization, And I think it's been uh, very efficacious for most people who will be watching it. Um, we'll be uh, putting this out, of course, as a radio show and as a TV show. But let me ask you both to make a closing statement. We've got one minute for each of you. Dan Hodges, you go first.
0: Well, I thought actually the most, and thanks for this debate. I think it's been really useful. And thanks for with me and it. I thought the most significant moment actually was when was early on when Peter cited um I can't remember the doctor's name and said that he'd he'd quoted him and the doctor had been proven to be wrong, but that didn't mean Peter was wrong. and I, and I think that 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 puts us to the to, to the heart of it as I said throughout and we've seen we've seen the debate, you know Peter acknowledged that he's made statements, cited experts who have been proven to be wrong but is simply unwilling to unjust his arguments or or adjust his position on the basis of those changed facts. And I think that is what's undermined this debate and been at the, the heart of this debate. And I think everybody, I've held my hand up, I've done it. And I think everybody need, needs to accept that these are difficult issues. And when the facts change, we have to change our views and base our views on those facts. Otherwise, as I said, what started off as legitimate scepticism becomes ultimately
2: denial. Peter, one minute.
1: Well, I'd like to quote a leading national newspaper commentator uh, with one small change because he misused a word. This is the point we have reached or been stampeded to. A moment in our history where reluctance of turning one of the world's leading democracies into a police state is derided as confused flippancy. Those cheering their own imprisonment and attacking Boris for his perceived timidity need to realise that they are in danger of unleashing forces far more deadly than even the most lethal pandemic. Just how much alacrity do we want our leaders to display when discarding our fundamental freedoms? We do not want pragmatists or even populists. We want authoritarians or a single authoritarian, our own British strongman who will kill the virus in our midst no matter what the cost to inconvenient concepts such as personal liberty and Justice and Parliamentary Democracy. That commentator was Dan Hodges, and he wrote that on the 29th of March 2020 in the Mail on Sunday.
2: Well, I think um, you can't say fairer than that. Gentlemen, uh, it's been a pleasure. I'm sure we'll reenact this again because I fear we may have to be debating this particular subject for a very long time. Thank you to everyone uh, for listening. Thank you to everyone here uh, for setting it up and for doing it under quite difficult circumstances during a lockdown where nobody could go anywhere. Peter Hitchens, Dan Hodges, thank you very much indeed. This is Talk Radio.